shop the people I work with so I'm way over it I'm your man KJ Green welcoming you back to the Hoodwood and it's middle of January and middle of January means playoffs the best football in the world right now best teams that's all you gotta say about it so let's look at the wild card round review and there were six games over the weekend all of them pretty decent games. There were a couple of butt whoopings at the front and the tail end, but there were some really awesome games over the course of the weekend. The weekend started in San Francisco, where, or I should say Santa Clara, where the Seahawks stood tall with the 49ers for about two and a half quarters. 17-16, and then the 49ers decided, you know what, we tired of playing with y'all. We just gonna run you. And they ripped off 25 straight points, and that was all she wrote. The 49ers moving on to the divisional round with a 41-23 win over the Seattle Seahawks. Game looked pretty easy. Brock Purdy passed his first playoff test, looking pretty solid in his playoff debut. And now they get a team from Texas, which we'll look at that, that game here in a little bit. The Saturday night game was the Jaguars versus the Chargers. And for the first maybe, I don't know, 26, 27 minutes of the game, it was all Chargers. Trevor Lawrence didn't look like he had a clue. Justin Herbert was taking advantage of short fields. Asante Samuel Jr., he is he's in this league was making play after play after play. He had three interceptions in the first half for crying out loud. And you're thinking, this game is going to be a massacre. You know, the notoriously rowdy Duval County patrons at TIA Bank Field were looking pretty silent. And my prediction that the Chargers were going to go into rolling Duval and say, so what, was looking pretty prescient. The Jaguars scored at the end of the first half to make it 27-7. And you're thinking, okay, no shutout, but surely the Chargers can't blow a 27-7 lead. Don't call me Shirley. The Jaguars came out in the second half looking like a different team. I don't know 
Who played inv Invasion of the Booty Snatchers? I, I mean, Body Snatchers or whatever you want to call it. But the Jags and the, Char and the Chargers looked like two totally different teams in that second half. Trevor Lawrence was making his passes. The defense was getting, getting uh, stops on Justin Herbert of the Chargers. And the Jags slowly but surely, don't call me Shirley, I kept telling you, cut into that Chargers lead. Drive after drive, they cut it 27-14. They cut it 27-20. Then you're thinking, okay, oh, well, I'm sorry, it was 27-14, the Chargers kicked the field goal, made it 30-14, and then the Jags made it 30-20. The critical moment of that game was when the Chargers lined up for a makeable 43-yard field goal. Now, when the game started, I was at a friend's house, watched the first half of the game, was thinking, I don't want to watch this blowout, and I left. Went to get me something to eat. I was in a restaurant, waiting to pick up my food, and I was looking at my phone, following the game. And I saw it was 30-20. to 20. And I'm thinking, if they make a field goal, that's a two-touchdown lead, with about five and change to go, I'm thinking it might be game over. That might be checkmate. He misses the field goal. When the Chargers missed the field goal, I confidently predicted. I said, the Chargers are going to lose this game. I'm just going to go straight against my pick. I know I said that Los Angeles was going to win the game. But I knew when that field goal got missed, that's all she wrote. The Jaguars cut the lead to two. And then grind it down the field, taking advantage of another a strong defensive stand. And won it with a walk-off to win it 31-30. Wasn't the largest playoff comeback ever. It was the third largest comeback. But once again, the Chargers failed in the clutch. They were, they were looking like a team that could be, could be a dark horse making noise. But the failure in Denver, then the failure in Jacksonville, ends the Chargers season. And I am thoroughly shocked that there wasn't a full house cleaning in Los Angeles. Brandon Staley was waiting for that call. Come to the front office, bring your playbook. Joe Lombardi, the offensive coordinator of the Chargers, got the game. But it was the abject failure of the Los Angeles Chargers as a collective, offensively and defensively. Offensively, their offense just dried up. Defensively, they made Trevor Lawrence look like all pro. And I'm not taking anything away from Trevor Lawrence because he's a good quarterback. But they made that kid look like Johnny Unitas in the second half. So the Jags move on to play Kansas City, who got the first round by. On Sunday, led off with the with the Bills and the and the Dolphins. And initially, it looked like the Bills were having everything going their way, everything under control. You had the uh, 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 Miami starting the third string quarterback and you and you're thinking, "Okay, this is going to be a Bills walkover." But the Bills kept making mistakes. Josh Allen kept forcing the ball where he didn't need to force it. And the Dolphins kept hanging around, hanging around. 
And then you're getting in the third and fourth quarter, you're going, this should not be. The Dolphins should not be in this game. Now, the Bills pulled out 34-31 win due to some awful clock management by the Dolphins. Mike McDaniel, as coach of the Dolphins, might have lost his job. I thought he was going to lose his job for that horrid clock management. You don't take a delay. You're trying to get a fourth and one where you may be able to force overtime. You've got the ball. You've got options. And you take a delay of game penalty? Are you serious? Another abject failure in the the crucial times. This is where teams are tested. And the Dolphins, like the Chargers the night before, failed when the Crucible was right there. You had to make a play. And you failed. Buffalo moves on to the divisional round. Now the 4:30 game. I know, Giants were not support word with nine seven and one. You know, playing the 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 Vikings. The Vikings were seven and one at home. All the experts said, "Oh, the Giants are going to win." I was like, "No, no, the Minnesota's going to show them something." Minnesota showed them nothing. Their defense played like absolute shit, and I'm not bleeping myself on that. They played horrible. They let Daniel Jones, who I think is a decent quarterback, but he's not all-world. He's not an all-pro. He's a serviceable quarterback. But he continued to run on the Vikings. He continued to make those medium throws on crossing routes. And you're wondering, why aren't they making an adjustment here? The Vikings failed to make an adjustment. And the Vikings' offense, for their poor part, they didn't turn the ball over. Kirk Cousins had a decent game, even though... He just forgot who Justin Jefferson was, forcing the ball to T.J. Hawkinson and Adam Thielen repeatedly. But the Giants, for their part, kept Justin Jefferson quiet. The one touchdown he was supposed to have got got called back when he was short of the goal. He never got got a chance to get in the end zone. Vikings lost 31-24. The Giants move on to the divisional round to face Old Divisional Fold, Philadelphia. And you had a Sunday night cap. A backyard brawl between the Ravens and the Bengals. The Bengals, heavy favorites in this game. But for some reason, the Ravens continue to hang around. Another team that had no business being in this game. They were down to a third-string quarterback who you really didn't think he was going to do that much. I mean, Tyler Huntley. Tyler Huntley, for crying out loud, was giving the Bengals fits. And the crowd at Paycor Stadium was looking more and more pensive, like, are we really going to let this knucklehead send us home? The game's tied in the third, in, in the third quarter, going in the fourth. The Ravens are driving the ball with a real chance to take the lead. They led at halftime 10-9. The Bengals had pushed back in front. It was 17-10. But the Ravens, on a busted coverage, tied the game. And you're thinking, oh no, could be trouble. The Ravens rip off a 35-yard run by Tyler Huntley. Gets the ball inside the five. 
Tyler Huntley tries to dive over the over the pile. He doesn't dive forward. He dives straight up. Logan Wilson does kind of a, a Dikembe Mutombo in, impression. Rejects the ball. Knocks the ball off his hands right into the, the, the waiting hands of Sam Hubbard. Hubbard's like, I got the ball. I'm out of here. And takes off running. 66,000 fans at Paycor Stadium collectively were all screaming, run, Sam, run. 98 yards the other way in an absolutely back-breaking play for the Ra on the Ravens. Now, there may have been a bit of a question on, uh, did Marcus Bailey throw a bit of an illegal block on, on Mark Andrews, who might have run him down? Oh no, could be. But that's neither here nor there. They didn't call it. And Hubbard makes a game-changing play. A game-saving play for the Bengals. Because I'm pretty sure, had the Ravens scored, I don't think the Bengals had 10 points in them. Another 10 points in them to retie to re the game and take back the lead. Nothing against Joe Burrow, nothing against Jamar Chase or T. Higgins or Samaj J. P. Ryan or Joe Mixon, but the Bengals' offensive line was shredded. And you can't really convince me that they're going to go into Buffalo with a weak offensive line and hold that, that freewheeling pass rush off, even without Von Miller. But we'll get into that in the, in the divisional round preview. And you had the Monday Nighter. This was a game I was really confident that Tom Brady was going to come back and, and do the, you know, and ask yourself, who's the Mac type of game. But the Buccaneers with zero running game, none. They had no running game. And Dallas just continued to just take advantage of it, grind out touchdowns, though they couldn't hit an extra point to save their life. How do you miss four extra points? How were you a professional kicker and go miss left, miss left, miss right, doink? And it's 20, it's being 28 to nothing, it's 24 to nothing. So people were still in Tampa Bay going, so you stay, stay, there's still a little chance. Just a little chance. Tom Brady hits Julio Jones to 24 to 6 because the Buccaneers couldn't get the two point conversion. It's like a junior high game, 24 to 6? What kind of score is that? But the, the Cowboys, to their credit, went right back down the field, scored a touchdown. Brett Maher finally hit an extra point, and it's 31-6. And the Cowboys are looking like, what you got now? And Buccaneers are like, we're, we're done. We're done. I mean, the Bucks put on a garbage time touchdown late, but the final score being 31-14, and the game wasn't that close. The Cowboys... Dominate the Buccaneers start to finish. The Bucs had no running game, and Tom Brady was running for his life trying to throw passes. And him being as immobile as he is, it was like uh, a starving man at a buffet. It was sad. It really was. And is this, the, is this it for Brady? Yeah, there's rumors he might go to Vegas. He might go back to New England. Brady's 45 years old. He will be 46 when the 2023 season starts. He will be the only player in the NFL, if he comes back for one more year, that was born in the 70s. 
I, I, I don't know. I, I, that is a, a, a question that we will speculate on here in the Hoodwood probably from, from now until they kick off the 2023 season. So, then you have, you have the divisional round, which will have the Jaguars taking on the Chiefs. And then you have the Giants going to Philly taking on the Eagles. Those are your Saturday games. Sunday games being the Bengals versus the Bills. And the nightcap being the Cowboys going to Frisco to take on the Fortnite. We will preview those up next. That means we are taking a timeout. And most of the time you hear bumper music is original music by the Uptown Gangs with Wood House Man. This one, we're uh, spotlighting a different group. A uh, group that Hoodwood approved, North 41. With every day above ground, so good day. Love this one, basically. So let's take a time out. Come back with the divisional round preview. Sports from the Hoodwood comes back at you after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason, you need us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at GottaGetMarriedNow.com. You're tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the Internet's foremost location for the most honest insight, thorough analysis, and unfiltered opinion on the world of sports. Now, once again, here's the man of the hour, after hours, your host, K.J. Green. You're back in the Hoodwood. My name is K.J. Green, and let's turn our attention to, from last week's wildcard games to this week's divisional games. Survive in advance, that's a mantra for mid-January. Four of the six teams that played last week in the games won their games by seven points or less. And the 49ers were trailing as late as midway through the third quarter before ripping off a 25-point run that buried the Seahawks, broke their will, and allowed them to cruise. The Pokes-Bucks game, eh, let's not even bring that one up. That was a disaster all the way around. Conference semis are on tap now, known still now as the divisional round, where the top seeds now enter the fray of the playoffs. I still say that this is one of the best weekends of football. You have the top eight teams in NFL slugging it out for a right to get to the conference championship one step away from the Super Bowl. The NFL finally figured out that they should schedule these games, especially the Sunday games, bleeding into primetime. They already have the Saturday games as 4.30 and 8 o'clock game, which I think the primetime Saturday night game is probably one of the best moves that the NFL's made in the last 20 years, putting that, that divisional round game for actually all the Saturday games that they play, at least one in primetime. At least that's my particular opinion. Submitted for your review, perusal, and approval are this week's picks for the divisional round. Odds are being provided by ESPN for entertainment and comparison purposes only. Let's get started with the AFC Divisional Round game on January 21st. The 9-8 Jaguars, who are the number four seed and AFC South champions, 
take on the Chiefs, who are 13 and 4, the number one seed overall in the AFC and the AFC West champions. Game being played at GEHA Field at Arrowhead Stadium, Kansas City, Missouri. 4:30 kickoff on NBC. Mike Tirico and Chris Collinsworth on the call. The Chiefs are nine-point favorites. Last week, the Jaguars defeated the Chargers 31 to 30 in the wild card round, while the Chiefs had a bye into the division round. This is the team's first playoff meeting. The, the I almost said the Chargers. Lord have mercy. The <laughs> the Chiefs lead the overall series eight to six. Like I said, this is their first postseason matchup. Now, the Jags pulled off, as we detailed earlier, improbable comeback win over the Chargers before a deliriously happy crowd in Jacksonville. Their reward trip to Arrowhead Ugh. to face the Chiefs, who are 7-1 at home. They have been bored senseless over the last few weeks, having played a meaningful game for probably about three or four weeks, if not longer. Trevor Lawrence is showing what he can do with the right coaching and the Jags are our team on the rise, to be sure. The problem is the Chiefs have that been there, done that mentality, especially in the divisional round, and are aching for a rematch with either one of their, their arch rivals in the Bills, the Bengals. And they have absolutely no time to trifle with the young Jags. If the Jags spot the Chiefs' big lead like they did last week in Jacksonville against the Chargers, they won't come back. The pick here is Kansas City. Next on the docket for Saturday, we have the 9-7-1 Giants taking on the 13-4 Eagles. The Giants being the number six seed and the number one NFC wild card, I'll be part of the number two NFC wild card, taking on the Eagles, who are the number one seed. And uh, let me try that again. Next on the docket, we have the 9-7-1 Giants, who are the number six seed and the number two NFC wild card taking on the 13-4 Eagles, who are the number one seed in the NFC and the NFC East champions. Game being played at Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia. 8-15 kickoff on Fox. Joe Davis and Moose Johnston on the call. The Eagles are 7.5-point favorites. Last week, the Giants feed the Vikings 31-24 in the wildcard round, while the Eagles had a bye into the divisional round as the NFC's top seed. In playoff history, this is the team's Fifth playoff meeting, the Giants won the 1981 wild card game 27-21, the 2000 divisional round 20-10, while the Eagles have won the 2006 wild card game 23-20, and the 2008 divisional round 23-11. They have won once on each other's fields accordingly. Now, Denny, Denny Dimes scrambled and threw the G-Man accordingly to, stu to a stunningly easy win on the road in the wild card match in Minnesota. He faces a familiar foe in Philly. The Eagles, for a 14-win team and a number one seed, still have a lot of doubters and haters. Still, as long as Jalen Hurts isn't hurting, hey, a play on words. The Eagles are the better team, bar none. The Giants are still a wily bunch who need to be taken seriously. They play tough defense. Jones has thrived under the direction of, of Brian DeBall. That said, these games between these ancient longtime rivals will usually delve into a tense rock fight, as is their want, as you would expect. With stakes of the game having more tension and drama, but I think the Philly hangs tough and wins a tight one. The pick here is Philadelphia. Let's turn to the Sunday games. First on tap, we have the 12-4 Bengals, who are the number three seed in the AFC North champion taking on the 13-3 uh, Bills, who are the number two seed in the AFC East champion. Game being played at Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park, New York. 
1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The uh, I beg your pardon, it's not a 1 p.m. kickoff, it's a 3 p.m. kickoff. I have to correct that. The game being played at Highmark Stadium in Orchard Park, New York. 3 p.m. kickoff on CBS. Jim Nance and Tony Romo on the call for the game. Bills are five and a half point favorites. Last week, the Bills defeated the, Vol the Dolphins 34 to 31, while the Bengals defeated the Ravens 24 to 17 in the wild card round. Playoff history, this is the third time these teams have met in the playoffs, but the first time in Buffalo. The two teams met in the 1981 divisional round with the Bengals winning 28-21 and the 1988 AFC Championship game, Bengals prevailing 21-10. Now, the these two teams were supposed to face off in a very well-publicized high-stakes beating in December. I beg your pardon, in January, day after New Year's. But the game was, of course, canceled in light of the frightening injury circumstances surrounding DeMar Hamlin, who is thankfully out of the hospital and on the sidelines for the Bills. Uh, the teams that are now facing off in a higher stakes game now, while, while I love the plucky Joe Burrow, but behind a weakened offensive line, he is unable to utilize the cheat codes that he has in Jamar Chase and T. Higgins to the fullest having to make quick throws on hot reads. He could only hope that Josh Allen's tendency to try to get it all every time will backfire badly a few times, and that he could take advantage of short fields. If the teams were at full strength, I'd give the playoff-tested Bengals puncher's chance of being able to go into Orchard Park and steal a win. But the Bengals' short-headed offensive line is really going to come back to hurt them and they're going to come up short against the Bills and their fabled Bills Mafia, the Pickets Buffalo. Finally, in the divisional round, we have the 12-5 Cowboys with the number 5 seed and the number 1 wild card, taking on the 13-4 49ers, who are the number 2 seed as NFC West champions. Game being played at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara, California, 6.30 kickoff on Fox. The 49ers are 4-point favorites. These T2TO last week, the 49ers defeated the Seahawks 41-23, while the Cowboys defeated the Buccaneers 31-14. These two teams have a long and lengthy playoff history running back 50 years. This is the ninth time that these two teams have met in the playoffs. Cowboys winning in 1970, 71, 72, 92, and 93, while the 49ers won in 1981-94 as all other meetings, with the exception of last year's wildcard round matchup, being in the conference championship. Now, as we look at this matchup, both teams come in after seemingly effortless wildcard round wins. The Niners broke open a tight duel with their divisional rival Seahawks with a 25-point burst over the third and fourth quarters, while the Pokes looked almost bored in dispatching in a road-dominating win over a weak Bucks. Uh, uh, of a weak Brady-led Bucks squad. Now, the Pokes offense found its mojo. Stack pressed out. It's hardly touched by a weak Bucks defense, but the curve gets much, much steeper against a rough-and-ready Niners defense that gives up yards and points grudgingly and plays a wear-you-out physical-style ball. As much as the media wants the Pokes to be that team, they won't be able to come up with easy answers on offense Against that fearsome defense, the Pokes' defense won't be able to pin their ears back and bum-rush Brock Purdy 
as Christian McCaffrey will have to be accounted for and keep the both uh, defense very high in the run and the pass. KJ Green, if you're looking to reach a broad audience for your advertising dollar, look no further than where you are right now. You can advertise right here in the Hoodwood. If you need spots created as well, Black Banner Productions Enterprise creates commercial content that drives sales and gets results. You can send your inquiries to ads at blackbannerproductions.com. Black Banner Productions and Enterprises. Sounds, ideas, and images of the 21st century. five takes or something of that nature, but in this particular episode, I don't feel like doing five full takes, so I'm going to have five speculations. Tom Brady finishing his season with the Buccaneers with a 31-14 loss to the Dallas Cowboys on Wild Card Weekend is up for renewal of his contract. He signed a series of one-year deals with the Buccaneers but many people feel that he's not going to hang it up, that he's not going to retire. So I've thrown five cities that I think that may be hot in the running for Tom Brady in 2023. He will be 46 when he laces if he lace, chooses to lace it up for the 2023 season. So kick off of the 2023 season, Tom Brady will be the only player left that has still been born in the 70s playing in the NFL. The number one team that I think that would be bidding for Tom Brady's services and possibly getting him is Tampa Bay. He's played the last three seasons in uh, Florida and has been wildly successful taking the Buccaneers to the playoffs every year that he has played in Tampa and winning a Super Bowl in his first shot after the 2020 season. 
he is very comfortable in Tampa Bay, but there are problems with the Buccaneers. The Buccaneers have virtually no running game. They're going to be having a new offensive coordinator since Byron Leftwich was fired. And they don't think his relationship with Todd Bowles is that strong. He could go back to Tampa Bay, but he could go elsewhere. The second team in the Hood, Woodhide Five, I think that could be bidding for Tom Brady's services are the Raiders. Las Vegas Raiders seem to always have a hand in aging quarterbacks, whether it be Kenny Stabler, Jim Plunkett, uh, Rich Gannon, you name it, they usually have had their hand in it. And it wouldn't be so much of a surprise to see Tom Brady lacing up in the silver and black for one last go-round with Derek Carr stepping aside and virtually saying he's leaving town, the Raiders need a quarterback. And who better for a temporary bridge while they break in a new quarterback, possibly C.J. Stroud, maybe? Who knows? But the Raiders could be a very nice landing spot for Tom Brady, at least for a year, to finish out his career. And number three, I have on the list is Indianapolis. Now, this is a little bit of a, a speculation, a long shot. Indianapolis is a mess. They don't have a head coach. They have a very weak running game. They went 4-12-1 last year. And, and you know Tom Brady doesn't like losers. Could he be the spark to turn this team around for a last-ditch run? Speculation, but who knows. Number four on the list are the New York Jets. This is another team that is in desperate search of a quarterback. Now, this team has a lot more on the ball than, than someone like Indianapolis. They just need a quarterback. Zach Wilson flunking out badly in Gotham and no real clear leader in the clubhouse for the quarterback position. Could Tom Brady head to Gotham for a year to play? And especially to go up against his old team, the New England Patriots, that would be an interesting proposition. And finally, in the Hoodwood Hot Five of the five teams that I think that Tom Brady could go to, the New England Patriots. Who says you can't go home again? One more last shot with his old team and his old coach to try to make a desperate run to a final Super Bowl title. What better way to come to have left for three years the prodigal son coming back home to where he started his career. That's my Hollywood Hot Five. What's yours? And now for the Fat Dap Head Slap of the Week. If I don't pull my ear, please out. Anyway... That dap of the week goes, and if you saw my posting on the Hoodwood Facebook page, if you didn't, you need to become a member, even though right now I'm in Facebook jail, but you can still join Sports from the Hoodwood on Facebook, become a member, and see various interesting posts, like the one I did earlier in the week, with the wild ending of the Vanderbilt-Arkansas women's basketball game, which saw three lead changes in the final 10 seconds and back-to-back banked-in three-point field goals after the Lady Hogs took an 81-78 lead on the Lady Commodores in Fayetteville. Vanderbilt's Marnell Garad 
banked in a three to tie the game. And you're thinking, okay, we're going overtime. But wait a minute. Michaela Daniels had last word, and she had last licks, and she called ball game, banking in a three of her own. Check out the highlights on the Sports of the Hood Wood Facebook page, which will show the highlights and the last 10 seconds of that game. You got to see it. The back-to-back banked in are just outrageous. Our head slap of the week is to, to a coach who rarely does something as dumb as this. In a rivalry game against Kansas State, head co- Kansas head coach Bill Self called a timeout right when one of his players knocked in a three-pointer that would have given the Jayhawks the lead. The three-pointer was waved off, the timeout was granted, and Kansas never got a shot off to tie or win the game. Kansas State in Bramlett's Coliseum wins the game 83-82, knocking off number two Kansas, and further cementing their their claim to being a legit tournament team, knocking off the number two uh, team and having having your fans storm the court. It's always something easy uh, easy on the eyes to watch, but you know Bill Self was probably going, go, after calling a timeout that he really shouldn't have, wiping out a chance for his team to survive an upset bid by the Kansas State Wildcats. But he called the timeout, and they ended up losing the game. And that's Fat Dab Head Slap of the Week. And now, without much further ado, let's go to the final word from the wood. Now, in a little under two months, March 12th to be exact, the day after Princess Jazzy's birthday, It'll be Selection Sunday, where the announcement of the 68-team field for the NCAA tournament on the road to Houston this year at NRG Stadium, where the NCAA Final Four will be held this year. Now, since the tournament first started some 84 years ago in 1939, the tournament has grown from eight teams in its first year to 16, to 22, to 25, 32, to 40, to 48, to 52, to 53, to 64, to 65, to 68, where it is now. The tournament has grown from a regional curiosity to a national phenomenon. Every year, millions of people fill out brackets to try to be the one in nine quintillion, that's a number, of uh, odds to have the absolute perfect bracket, picking every team who uh, win, loss, upset, what have you in the tournament. It's never been done. I don't even think a team has even come close, one any player person has come close to picking every uh, bracket right. But they do it, and it's a fun time had by all. Now, with the perfect, as I thought of it, bracket at 64 teams that ran from 1985 to 2000, you had basically three weekends. You still do have three weekends. The addition of four playing games since the year 2010 has added an additional dimension of games to the tournament. The first four in Dayton is always a popular venue and something that I've been to a couple of times being not too far from the Hoodwood. That being said, the NCAA is thinking of expanding the tournament to 90 teams. This is a bad idea. 
let's just put it this way all the way around. This is a bad idea. The thing that is so much loved about the NCAA tournament is from Selection Sunday to the finals is three weekends. And when you've been able to wiggle in the first four and those teams go on to play into the what would be the first or second round, but they usually end up playing on the, the Friday-Sunday games. So they aren't having that much of a hard turnaround to get to their regional and play their first round games. That being said, how are you going to expand the tournament to 90 teams? And I've looked and seen a bracket of 90 teams and how it's set out. There are way too many confusing buys. There are way too many confusing setups. This, I think, is a ploy for major conferences to be able to push more of their own teams into a knock, the knockout-style tournament. What, what joy would we have seeing a team that went 6-12 and 12 in its conference facing another major team that went 5-13 and 13 in its conference, winning 15 and 17 games respectively? More chances for smaller schools to be shut out. I am sick and tired of watching a 25 and 26 win team have to sit on the sidelines while a major conference team who has maybe barely made 500, if not below, make the tournament. Well, many people say that expanding to 90 teams will allow these smaller schools a better shot. I say baloney. It's more of a chance for mediocre major teams to get in the tournament and save their coaches bacon, and save other teams the ignominy of not making the tournament. We're overlooking great, smaller, and mid-major schools to who rightfully deserve to have their one-shot dance. We should not, and I repeat, not expand the tournament to favor bigger schools and their bloated school and their bloated coaches who think as long as they get play 500, they'll have a chance to get humiliated to make the dance, even if they are humiliated in the first round. 90 teams is not a good number. 68 is the perfect way to go for the NCAA. Leave it alone. And that is the final word from the wood. Now, with the music coming up in the background, you know that means that your time here in the Hoodwood is just about done, and I thank you so much for your visit again this week. Now, the show's email is kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. Please send emails regarding show topics, questions, comments on the show, both praise and criticism. I welcome your correspondence, and we'll try to get back to you as quickly as I can.
Reports from the Hoodwood is a Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises presentation of a 551 Audio and Films Productions.